You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Do you ever have this problem? You're getting ready for a long walk in the woods and you want to roll a spliff of smokable herb. You've got your herb in the bathroom, you're rooting around in your toiletries kit for medical scissors so you can chop it up nice and fine, but then you have to go get a plate from the kitchen. When you're all done, it's a mess. You've got herbs all over the bathroom, your hands smell like herb, you've got to wash all this stuff and put it back. It takes forever to get out the door, you're not vibing, you got to light that spliff up before you can feel at peace. Ugh. Luckily, Happy Trees has the solution. A premium grade stash box from Happy Trees. That's happytreesupplies.com. Happy Trees sells a convenient lockable stash box. It comes with a four-piece titanium grinder that will give you the smooth grind you've been looking for. The 50 diamond cut teeth grinds your herb to the perfect size for cones and rolls. The neodymium magnets keep the lid on tight while you grind. There's also a stash jar, which will protect your herb from damaging UV rays and keep moisture in, so your stash stays fresh. The airtight seal helps keep smells inside, so you can save them for yourself. There's also a metal rolling tray, so you can save every precious bud. And everything fits snugly into the box. Plus it has a key, so your nosy roommate or your little brother isn't poking around in your stash. They come in three varieties. There's the Metatron's Cube-themed box that has Metatron's Cube etched on the box in every accessory. Metatron's Cube is a sacred image associated with the angel who translates the directives of God into a form comprehensible to humans. This is according to the Kabbalah. There's also a Desert Visions-themed box. It has colorful desert scenes painted onto the accessories. And for those of you who prefer plain, there's a box made of bamboo that is just adorable. I have my own Happy Tree stash box. Yes, I use it to hold my stash. I absolutely love it. These boxes range from $38.90 to $28.90 on the website, happytreesupplies.com. But now Happy Trees is offering a special deal to anyone who listens to this show. Use the coupon code SPECTRAL20 for a 20% discount. What are you waiting for? Skip the mess, get organized, and preserve your stash from degrading ultraviolet light and snoopy little thieves who try to make off with your herb. Check out happytreesupplies.com. That's happytreesupplies.com. In today's episode of Spectral Skull Session, I am interviewing Dick Kahn, author of DMT and My Occult Mind. Kahn is a researcher based in London who's been experimenting with psychedelic substances, particularly DMT. DMT, or dimethyltryptamine, is a potent hallucinogenic used in religious ceremonies by numerous indigenous peoples around South America. In 2000, Richard Strassman, professor of psychiatry at the New Mexico School of Medicine, published a book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, which made the astonishing claim that DMT, naturally released by the pineal gland, facilitates the soul's movement in and out of the body. In Strassman's view, near death, out-of-body experiences, and even alien abductions could be linked to endogenous DMT release. This book helped light a powder keg of interest in the relationship between DMT and the paranormal or spiritual phenomena. Today, I am interviewing one contemporary researcher, Dick Kahn, a London-based author who has recently published a book, DMT and My Occult Mind, chronicling his experiences with DMT usage and encounters with what he describes as occult entities. 
This episode deals with the use of a highly illegal substance, at least for our American audience. DMT is a Schedule I controlled substance in the United States. This means it is illegal to manufacture, buy, possess, or distribute the drug. Penalty for producing DMT can be up to $1 million in fines and 20 years in federal prison. On top of this, no one disputes that the experience of DMT users can be deeply disturbing, including long-term psychological changes, as we will discuss in the podcast today. It's important for the audience to know that the Spectral Skull Session does not advocate the use or manufacture of DMT. So you may ask, why do this topic at all? After all, we're not talking about marijuana here, a drug that's unquestionably culturally mainstream, even though it remains illegal. Well, a couple things need to be said. First, there's a growing movement in the United States to decriminalize psychedelic substances. In 2019, the city of Oakland, California, decriminalized DMT, along with psilocybin mushrooms. The state of Oregon and the District of Columbia followed suit in 2020. No doubt this will spread to other states and other countries. The audience may one day find themselves voting on a measure to decriminalize or even legalize DMT. With such a possibility looming, the public deserves open, honest conversations about DMT and other psychedelics. As America pushes back against the legacy of the failed war on drugs, there will be, as there always is, a temptation to let the pendulum swing the other way entirely. Demonization of substances can rapidly give way to irrational exuberance about their healing power. This is especially likely to be true as market forces take charge. Believe me, at this very moment, business interests are lobbying the U.S. government to give them exclusive access to the manufacture and sale of psychedelics. Anyone unfamiliar with this should check out the documentary The Rise of Psychedelic Capitalism, made by Rebel Wisdom and available for free on YouTube. Just as our pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. manufacture consent around the labeling of human neurodiversity as disease, telling us we need serotonin reuptake inhibitors from everything from a worried disposition to bad sex to difficult menstrual cycles, so too will powerful market forces be in a rush to sell us on the next psychedelic panacea, just as big tobacco paid for positive coverage from science, medicine, and the press at least some of the incredible deluge of articles we've seen in the past five years about the miraculous healing powers of psychedelics are probably propaganda placed there by those who have a financial interest in generating an unfettered demand for the consumption of weird chemicals. But the real story is probably more complex. To my mind, the more genuine potential for good that psychedelics have and the research suggests they do have real potential for good, the more they are potentially dangerous. If Timothy Leary was right that psychedelics can rewrite our cultural programming or scripting, then surely they could contribute to an explosion of barbarism. If psychedelics open the door to genuine spiritual experiences, then might they not also carry with them the risks historically associated with religion, fuzzy thinking, tunnel vision, self-destructive fanaticism? And if psychedelics facilitate encounters with paranormal spirits or otherworldly beings, then they possibly also expose us to what were once called devils or demons. As a society, we need to confront these possibilities openly and without either demonization or Pollyannaism, but rather in the critical spirit of small s skepticism. When I began reading Dick Kahn's book, I saw an opportunity to have a productive conversation, one that is both honest and represents a unique perspective on what DMT users are encountering. Khan is one of a growing cohort of psychonautical researchers who see DMT as a spirit molecule. But as we will see, he makes no bones about the intensity and the sheer complexity of his encounters with occult entities. What are these beings? Are they even real? What might they do to someone who reaches out to them by using DMT? Are there possibilities contained in DMT, both positive and negative, that go 
beyond anything currently in the public discourse? These are some of the questions I hope the audience will keep in mind as we begin, without further ado, our interview with Dick Kahn, author of DMT and My Occult Mind. Okay, so my first question for you is, uh, how did you get started with DMT? And I just wanted to know, you could talk about how you got interested in the chemical, how you first started taking it, those sorts of things. Yeah, okay, so uh, as married, I was browsing the internet and I'd heard about legally purchasable research chemicals and I'd, I'd looked into an alternative to uh, MDMA, which I could no longer secure for home use. And I came across uh, an empathogenic psychoactive compound known as 6-APB, which was attracting mm. rave reviews on the website. So I purchased a view and found the experience of swallowing one or two tablets comparable, if not sometimes superior, to ecstasy. Uh, that would typically see me sleeplessly up all night, feasting on wealth of information available on the internet. And it was through one of those such nights that I chanced upon DMT, the Spirit Molecule documentary. I'd never heard anything like it before in my life. Uh, the significance of what was being stated was remarkable. And uh, the goosebumps dimple in my skin, no doubt significantly aided by the uh, 6APB, uh, spoke of the uh, significance of my reaction to what I was uh, seeing. Um, and I knew upon seeing that, I knew I simply have to try uh, DMT. And... Um, I set about purchasing a, a quantity of, excuse me, Mimosa Stillish Root back. Uh, I purchased that and it, it sat in a cupboard for months and months while I um, undertook online research into other people's experiences. And um, eventually my curiosity reached the point where I, I really wanted to have this breakthrough into hyperspace experience. Um, yet all that online research had imbued me with cautious respect for DMT's reputation as a psychedelic unlike any other. Uh, and had it, has it been many years since I'd, I'd last frolicked with LSD magic mushrooms, I decided to uh, test my psychedelic navigation skills. And so I purchased a, a punnet of magic truffles shipped from our good neighbours in the Netherlands. And uh, having had you know an experience, an ego death on those magic truffles, I was satisfied I could progress to, to DMT. And it was after a couple of failed attempts at a DIY extraction that I eventually managed to procure, extract the crystals and woke up one morning delighted to find my glass dish sat in the freezer speckled with pure white crystals of mind manifesting treasure. Hmm. Uh, except I had no idea how to smoke them. I, I didn't know, I'd not researched that, that there's an art to smoking DMT. So I, I was unsuccessfully trying to smoke them using test tubes and glass tubes, all to no avail. And now, you know, chomping at the bit to finally experience the substance, I hurriedly fashioned a makeshift pipe from a redundant beer can, piercing several pinhole punctures into a small depression pressed into the side of the can. And with my wife overseeing me, I, uh, one sunny noontime, I, I sat upon the bed and greedily and excitedly vacuumed down my first lungful of, of potent DMT vapour. Now, almost immediately, my lifelong persistent tinnitus, which I'm completely comfortable with, unexpectedly increased significantly in both intensity and frequency. The airspace throughout the room exhibited extreme crystal clear clarity. Uh, countless decorative dimples on the ceiling sparkled spectral colours from the sunlight. Uh, and given that my tinnitus had been such a significant aspect of my early childhood, it's fair to say that I was not only overawed by the power of the substance, but completely enamoured by that low dose experience. And it was without question from then on I would pursue DMT. That's very interesting. And then was that, did you have an entity encounter on the first time that you used it or was it? No, I, I don't think so. I, I just amplified my own 
psycho-spiritual constitution. I didn't know it at the time, but that's what gives the room that unbelievable crystal clear clarity, this uncommonly dense medium that, that emanated from me caused the uh, sunlight streaming through that uncommonly dense medium to cause all the deep dimples on the ceiling in this bedroom to radiate with spectral colours, it was remarkable. But no, there was no sense of any entity contact and, uh, you know, my wife was looking upon me and she said, okay, you've tried it, leave it alone now. And I was like, no way, this is, this is something else. So your senses in that first time you used it, uh, there was an expansion of consciousness and you became more perceptive. Oh, I mean, I, yes, but it, that wasn't aware to me at that time. That, those, those arguments have become clear to me as I've progressed with it, but that's, that's why I'm arguing happened. The effect of the DMT in increasing the intensity and frequency of my tinnitus audibly within, perceptibly without, was the room became crystal clear with my own emanating, I don't know, you can call it mind stuff, psycho-spiritual substance, astral fluid, I'm not really hung up on the nomenclature. I think okay. I'm just interested in this is the initial effect of smoking DMT and it's remarkable, you know, remarkable. And uh, yeah, here we are. <laughs> yeah, can I ask you about the, the tinnitus? Yeah, the tinnitus, yeah. I mean, uh, and I think I've tried to um, emphasize this in my written work, my books, but yeah. this was a. I mean, I have it, I've always had it, I have it now. But when I was young, really young, it was, it was loud, especially alone in bed at night. And I would focus on this sound and it was just, it, you know, resulted in some really bizarre um, experiences, um, out of body, classic out of body experiences where, you know, you leave your body and you can will yourself forward and will yourself through closed wooden doors. I never actually left the house. I was very young, but I had several of those. So from a young age, it was evident there's something within me that, that can exist outside my body. And yet strangely perceive the environment just as my lateral eyes perceive the environment. Other experiences were feeling improbably and infinitesimally small in comparison to the size of the bedroom and then that would slowly transpose and I would feel expanded well beyond the bounds of the bedroom like I was in a huge domed space and this is me being very young and, and mm. focusing on that tinnitus and uh, you know I mean I, I couldn't understand why my parents never spoke about you know I, I assume they had that same sound in their head but nobody ever spoke about it and I don't know, no, nobody, it was, it was years later when, you know, as an adult at work, and I'd, I'd ask somebody, you know, at work, I said, listen, do you, do, you have that, do you have that sound in your head, you know, when you're in a quiet room and you can really hear it? And I explained what I meant, and they just kind of looked at me, as like, you're hearing things in your head. And it was like, oh, it just, the, the conversation bombed and made me look like, you know, this dude's got something in his head. But, you know, I know, I know tinnitus can arise through industrial diseases, uh, hearing loss. I know there's a genuine, um, there are medical symptoms uh, arise through a variety of things, but I've had this all my life and, and in Eastern philosophy, it's, um has a very different interpretation. It's more considered, you know, for, for its um, spiritual factor. I mean, I've come to assume it's it's evidence of an, an interface between my immaterial self and my physical self. But I, I mean, yeah, I mean, when DMT turned up the volume of that, I mean, this is a point I really want to drive on. It was on, I would become enamored with it because that sound had been such a big part of my life and especially my early childhood. That DMT increased that. Oh, wow. This is, what is this magic substance? So the, I just wanted to make sure the audience knows that uh, tinnitus in the United States, if we're talking about the same thing, I understand that it's um, it's a, a persistent ringing sound yep. that you hear. And it's usually, at least I've always heard, it's associated with hearing loss or damage. I think you yeah, mentioned that yeah, earlier. That's, that, that's um, points up. Yeah, I mean, it can be associated with industrial hearing loss, okay. yeah, industrial diseases. 
Um, but right. I, I've had it all my life. I know other people who, since I've published, have come to me and said, what you wrote is just fantastic because I've experienced the same thing. So it seems uh, some individuals just seem to have that natural persistent tinnitus and you know I'm, I'm, I'm one of them absolutely and I've also heard from reading on the DMT literature that one of the most common things that happens when people smoke for the first time is they hear a ringing sound that's right and yeah they, they hear a ringing sound whereas what happens with me because I've already got that sound there I mean yeah. all the time when I'm at work when I'm at home watching TV when I'm having a meal with my family I mean, I can hear it now, even though we're having a conversation, I can hear it within my head. You know, my response upon smoking DMT is that, that the intensity and the frequency of that sound increases significantly in proportion to, you know, the number of inhalations and, and the dose of DMT that I'm taking. So have you considered, you, you might be already tuned into some frequency, maybe you're sensitive to the DMT or aligned to it in some way? I mean, I don't don't think of myself as anyone. I'm just a regular guy. I don't think I'm special or anything like that. But I do find it interesting that, you know, I, I thought this was just common to everybody, but it seems not. So I don't really know what to make of it. I mean, some people have suggested, you know, maybe you have um, uh, a well-developed or sensitive pineal gland. I don't know. I mean everybody's different you know you get some humans that physically big and physically strong and some have that you know fantastic IQ we've all got different uh, you know uh, outward features and, and mental different capabilities and maybe this is just something that, that I've been blessed with I don't see it as a hindrance I'm completely comfortable with it that's very cool that's very interesting I think that might be just an important thing to keep in mind too just that uh, you might say I'm not different from other people. I don't think of myself as different, but we don't know. Uh, hey, hey man, I, I, hey, I'm dealing with psychedelics. I'm, I have to stay grounded, so uh, yeah. I won't. Yeah, but it's kind of you to say so. But yeah, I, I imperative to stay grounded. Very interesting. So could you describe uh, how you first began to encounter entities while using DMT? Um, well, so from there, my, my second experience, it was 15 milligram and it was in, in the bedroom. And, you know, I smoked and, and laid back. And this is one of the hardest, I mean, I, I've since come to be able to distinguish an entity experience, but this one was really unusual because I lay back uh, and I could still see the bedroom, you know, as clear as I see it now. And yet on the, the ceiling, there was this oversized image and it was like an old cinemagraph movie you know two-dimensional and, and um, sort of sepia or monotone coloring and it was me and my family and we were all holding hands you know my, my boys were much smaller then and we were all walking it was a really happy scene and I'm laid on the floor looking at the ceiling me and my family are up on the ceiling looking down at me all smiling all happy walking you know holding hands and I just, I was like, you know, I mean, the thing with DMT is ordinarily you, you retain your rational senses. And I'm looking at me and my family, looking at me, and I'm thinking, how the hell is this happening? But, you know, I, I came from that experience. You know, if, if I was enthusiastic after the first experience, this experience just raised my enthusiasm even more, you know, it's like, this is unbelievable. I, I really got to pursue this. And what's what's interesting about that is, you know, um, I think there's a book touches on schizophrenia. I think it's called something on the origins of the influencing machine. There's a, a Wikipedia um, entry about that. And something in there talks about this sort of cinemagraphic hallucinatory imagery. And, and what I saw, the style of what I saw, really fits that mould. And I'm not, you know, I'm not here suggesting I've got any uh, schizophrenic um, disposition, but the sort of commonality between what I'd seen on that experience and, and what I'd then uh, come across more than once on, in that Wikipedia entry were really interesting. But yeah, it was, you know, from then on, pursuing more and more, I mean, the next experience, 
then it, it was like, you know, the, the bedroom had gone or the room that I was in, you know, seemingly disappeared and it looked like I'd gone to another world and that world was peopled with human-like entities who were absolutely delighted at my arrival and, and you know, come out of that and it's like shaking your head, you know, like Terence McKenna said, you know, you, you say you can't believe it and you repeat that over and over and over again because you genuinely in ontological shock. Yeah. Are you saying that the first time you used it, you just had perceptual experiences? The second time you saw a hallucination of your family and you together in yeah, the room? Yeah, so it was like, um, it was like, it was like I was on the floor and it's almost yeah. like a projector was beaming onto the ceiling this old cinemagraphic style movie of me and my family, all oversized, I mean, appearing much larger, you know, than my regular size, all walking in this uh, lovely scenery and holding hands and, and smiling. And, and I think the point I'm trying to not make, but the point I'm, I'm the, the, the question I'm asking is, or the uncertainty I'm raising is, I don't know if that was a product of my own mind hmm. or whether there was an entity present. I wasn't aware of it because of my, uh, I was still a, a novice, you know, a, you know, two, two experiences in. So I don't know if an entity was somehow, you know, putting that hallucinatory scenery on the ceiling. But either way, the outcome was that I was, this is, this substance is so remarkable. This is unbelievable. You know, every, every, I spent months and months reading lots of hundreds of reports from other people like that they'd all gone out the window i was no longer in interested i'd forgot about what i was like i gotta pursue this more and more this is unbelievable did you have a sense it was a very meaningful image then that you were seeing um in the sense of my reaction to it yeah i mean if it was put there by an entity the entity i suppose it did 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 that in a, a manner that elicited the reaction, my reaction, which was, wow, this is beautiful. You know, I, I gotta pursue this. There was absolutely no reason why I would want, not want to have another experience based on, on that. So I, I think, I, 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 I suspect there was an entity involved. It wasn't clear to me. I just can't buy that my mind would somehow, I can't see how my mind would project well i can but i just don't think it was my mind projecting that moving cinemagraphic style imagery onto the ceiling in the bedroom but you know who knows so in retrospect you think it was too rich and detailed of an image of a hallucination for you to have generated it internally so you infer that it might have yeah yeah because because with with all other experience that have proceeded from that i've um I've not seen any evidence to suggest that my mind could produce those kind of effects. I'm not saying, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it never could, but on my DMT experiences, I've never seen my mind create something as, as beautiful as that. That seems to be another consistent theme of uh, DMT experiences, that people talk about things being hyper-real or, like, more real than real. Oh, and yeah. you see so many people will insist, like, um, I know that this is real because... Like, it, it feels more real than anything I've ever seen in, in life. Well, I mean, it, when, you, when you're in that breakthrough experience, absolutely, it looks far, 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 far more real than real life. I mean, the, the, mm. the, the, the colors are rich. The, 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 I say, surfaces in inverted commas appear um, without blemish, so smooth, you know, perfect. Uh, without without any any dimple, and I think you know, I, I do think there's um, a science, albeit a spiritual science, behind behind this. You know that that can say, well, you know, the reason it's like that is because of this, this, and this. And, and what I'm proposing is that it's the the uncommon density of of that substance that that gives it that you know, a realer than real appearance. And, and when I say uncommon density, I mean, let's just fast forward to me taking my research outside and 
smoking in the garden and that same you know whether we call it astral fluid or psycho spiritual substance or consciousness or mind stuff you know you can actually see it you know filling the local sky i mean significantly there's a, a bountiful amount of uh, you know, immaterial substance hidden within our physical frame and, and DMT can powerfully unleash that. And I, I've done that on a, you know, a windy day and the leaves are blowing and the trees are bending and yet that substance is just sat there and it's just not, you know, yielding to the wind one little bit. It's, you know, the, the wind troubles it not. And I think yeah. that kind of shows that this, that's why I call it a, an uncommon substance. It's something that we're not readily familiar with until you see it. And even then see it time and time again, as, as I have done, and I'm sure others have on, on, on DMT or through DMT experiences. Can, can we talk about that part of it? The, you talk about um, psycho-spiritual mind stuff literally bubbling out of you. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You talk yeah, about it yeah. filling the room. Yeah, you yeah. You talk about... Uh, and Very, I guess yeah. what, I'd, what I'd like to ask, Dick, is um, you, when you earlier you described things being hyper-real, realer than real, but then when you describe the psycho-spiritual mind stuff that sort of bubbles out of you, um, is that also realer than real? Like, do you have it? Because so, it sounds very abstract. Yeah, okay. So when I, when I first started smoking DMT, the effects with a low dose where I would get this really sort of colourful sort of mindscapes, you know, it's like in my mind's eye, but, you know, also in front of me. And and as I've progressed, that that's diminished. And even now, if I, you know, smoke a dose, I don't see that. I see this psycho-spiritual substance, this mind stuff, conscious, whatever, rapidly expanding from me. Um, the the point I'm driving home in my research is that that initial effect of DMT significantly alters one's setting. People talk about set, your state of mind and your, you know, your setting where you are. And the initial effect of smoking DMT and, and you know, expanding your, your mind stuff, you know, um, bubble-like, you have significantly changed your setting and it seems that 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 reaction is attractive to uh certain classes of hidden entity and mm. they will respond to it and i'm you know i say respond i mean this happens so quickly you know i mean you can be smoking a pipe three pulls you know i know now if i'm on my second pull i can sense i can perceive the arrival of the entity palpably perceive it because that expanded mind stuff when you become familiar with uh, its capacities you realize it as it you know you, you can sense the arrival of something within the room and even then you're taking then your third and final hit and you know this thing is there you know it's watching you and it's just waiting for you to sort of lay back and put the pipe aside and exhale and then it just Im imposes on you so uh I don't know if I deviated from your original question there, but um, I was trying to make the point about, you know, the, the metaphysical mechanics of, of what in effect is a, a breakthrough experience. Well, let's talk about the entities that you're describing, because you describe a variety of them in the book. Um, and some of them you talk about being very high energy. You call those occult masters. Yeah, then, yeah. I mean, you also describe some that seem like less than sentient. There's one really interesting uh, experiment you describe in your garden. Where you said you had an entity that manifested as a dome over the garden. Yeah. And you said it seemed intensely angry, yep. but also to have very narrow consciousness. Yep. And so it made me think that you were describing the equivalent of like a paranormal guard dog. It was almost like it was barking down at you, anger, anger, anger. But you said it seemed to have a very limited, unsophisticated mind. Am I repeat? Am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah, you, you, you are. I, I mean, I would say by far the by far the majority of my experiences, and certainly all of my experiences on ayahuasca have been interactions with that class of entity that I came to call um, occult masters. By far the majority. So any experiences that are not called masters, they really stand out from the main body of my research to me. Um, so the one that created the dome, I, I can picture now myself in the garden, I can see this 
overarching, you know, psycho-spiritual dome formed of the entity. Um, if I said that, I, I said that, I must have intuited that. But equally, I, I remember another experience smoking in the garden and I was wearing sunglasses and I was only wearing sunglasses to try and avoid any retinal sting from looking up at the sky. Yeah. Um, but I'd smoked and I'd legged back and, and, you know, this entity arrives and it's, you know, it's trying to interact with me, but the seconds are, are, are crucial. If it doesn't secure that interaction within the first few seconds, it's not going to happen. And I was... I was messing about with my sunglasses and I, I, I guess I have to be honest and say I probably wasn't taking that experience as, as seriously as I should and this this entity just, I, I, it just went, it just seemed to go but mere moments later this other entity came and this is going to sound unbelievable but you know, you know in a car you get the, um, the airbags that inflate rapidly yeah. when there's a crash. The best way I can describe it is that this other entity, it, it kind of undertook something similar beneath my backside, which was, you know, I was laid on the garden, on the grass. But there were these, like, three, like, sudden minor explosions, is the only way I can describe it, beneath my backside. And it was like, I was getting smacked on the bottom, you know. It's like, mm. I was I was being reprimanded for uh, my... I, my reaction, my response, you know, how I dealt with that, that first interaction by messing about with my sunglasses. So, uh, yeah, that, that was something. Um, and you mentioned about the, the, the barking dog. I remember when experienced in the house, in the small landing area at the top of the stairs and, uh, you know, smoked the area quickly fill, the volume fills up with your own psycho-spiritual substance, it attracts something and attracted, I think it was one or two entities and, and, and they were, I mean, they, they just seemed like vicious dogs, you know, and I, I was like looking away. I didn't want to interact with these things and I think, I think this is the report I called psycho, something about a, a psycho-spiritual police constable because a, another entity I say clearly came, you know, it's how you perceive things, and seemed to be admonishing this other entity or two entities. But, yeah, and, and what you'd said reminded me, I, I remember one other experience, and this entity had come down, and it's in the garden, and um, it wasn't like a, a breakthrough experience, but it's this, like, really beautiful, crystal-clear being I mean, really remarkable, and, and I've only encountered this kind of entity once. And I, I thought that this entity, this particular entity, was um, had a very narrowly defined intellect. And I chanced to just put my hand up and sweep my hand through it. And ordinarily, when you do that through your own psycho-spiritual substance or, or your own and that of the entity, you get a tracer trail, you know, like a repeater tracer. But when I swept my hand through this entity, I have never experienced a tracer trail like it. There was just like hundreds of, you know, uh, trails of, of my own hand. And I, I don't know, I just felt this was, um, it wasn't a very narrow intellect. This was a, I don't know, I felt it was a, an entity that was full of love. You know, it was really, it's just on a very different level. Maybe even to the occult entities, you know. Maybe this entity, what it lacked in wisdom, it, it made up for in love. I, I probably should qualify that by saying, you know, if it had that much love, it probably qualified highly for wisdom. But it was, you know, perceptibly and, and qualitatively a different entity to the occult masters. I think I... Um, do I have a quote about the... Court masters. I think I might if... Um... Oh, if you want to read one, that would be great to hear about them at Cult Masters. Yeah, I think I've managed to pull one from the book. Let me yeah, just jump onto that. All right, okay. So here we are. So, uh, my respect and admiration for the wisdom and capacity of this type of entity is unlimited. I suspect they have mastered an awful lot from the world of the mundane and the arcane and I imagine they themselves are still advancing and progressing, slowly and by degrees on their own evolutionary arc. 
I did not doubt for one moment the entity could see me and understand me, and in both instances, possibly better than I presently see and understand myself. I mean, I've had encounters with these beings where I have, I have cried afterwards. I have tried to rip my heart out from my chest and, and offer it up. I mean, the reaction that these beings can elicit from you, if, if you are sincere in your, you know, sincere and open in your interactions with them, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's the stuff of reverence and sort of, you know, devout, dare I say, sort of, devotion you know you really feel love for these beings and can you describe what is it that makes like an occult master come across to you as a master and what you know it's what some entities you describe as being like you said that they're more they're narrow intellect they're simpler um what what makes them different in your experience they seem to have um, complete working knowledge of human physiology and human mm. psyche. It's like they have the instruction manual for how we're made, how we operate, and, and all the little switches and levers within our psyche that make us operate, and they, they can manipulate that. They, they can just... just seems like there's nothing that they cannot do. Uh, I mean, let, let's give an outline. Um... I've had, I, I had quite a few experiences, breakthrough experiences, and I, I thought within those experiences that my lips had been sealed up. These entities seem to be able to um, impose this quasi-physical substance within your physiology, and you know, I feel it coating the the cheeks and the roof of my mouth and slowly, internally mm. sealing up my mouth. But because of the highly mesmeric state I'm in, I never I never thought to sort of test the integrity of that seal, but it felt like my lips, my mouth was closed and I wouldn't be able to open it if I tried. Anyway, it happened once that this same thing, you know, breakthrough experience, looks like I'm in another world. The entities invested throughout my oral physiology and it's coated my mouth with this, you know, uh, super thin, but, you know, strange quasi-physical seal. Anyway, I tried to open my mouth, could not open my mouth at all. And, you know, I mean, had I panicked, that mouth would have opened and that entity would have gone so quick. But because, you know, I'm, I'm working on the basis of, of, of trust and submission, you know, just just remarkable. Then to take that a step further, um, I'd had an experience with an entity, same as a breakthrough experience, it's wonderful, visuals, etc. It sealed up my mouth, uh, I can't open my mouth, and I've got this lung full of air. Not only is it sealed up my mouth, it's sealed up my nostrils as well. Basically, I'm, I can't breathe, and I'm, I'm not trying to, I've got this lung full of air within me. And this lungful of air is obviously diminishing and diminishing and diminishing and I know at some point I'm going to have to breathe even though my nostrils are sealed up and my mouth sealed up. In tandem with that, the high frequency ringing sound, the sort of, let's call it the tinnitus that the entities impose on me, it's just going off the scale. I mean a frequency is just incredible and it reaches this crescendo at the exact point I need to inhale and then my nostrils are free, my mouth open, <gasps> taking this much needed breath and as taking this much needed breath I'm, I'm kind of manipulated into speaking and my voice sounds qualitatively so different you know through this strange medium and I, I feel obliged to speak again and again and again and you know it's very clear I'm under some kind of it, it's like I'm being dealt with as though I'm a puppet and this occult being is the, the puppet master and it's just playing with me. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not pretending, I'm not enjoying myself. I'm, it's just delightful, you know, it's fantastic. But I can see why some people, upon hearing this, might think, you know, you know, it's uh, taboo. Yeah, it, I mean, it sounds... 
a little scary. And that, that leads me to one of my questions in here. Let's see, I believe it's question number nine. You sometimes describe unpleasant, challenging, or even terrifying encounters with the entities. And then uh, question 10, some of the experiences you describe are so frightening. Uh, was there ever a time that you were so shaken up that you didn't, you didn't want to continue anymore? And then what, what made you continue to do this after yeah. having these things sort of, you know, they put themselves into you, they're probing you, they're cutting off your air supply? Yeah, I mean, let, let's, we'll come to questions nine and 10, but I think, I think certainly for the benefit of, of, of listeners, and I need to emphasize this, that by far the majority of experiences and, and in, uh, have been playful and wonderful and entertaining beyond belief. And within that category, I would put the entity sealing up my mouth. Within that category, I would put the entity sealing up my mouth and my nostrils. The occult masters, as I came to call them. And as I say, if you show any sense of panic I don't doubt that they will intuit that so quickly and they'll be gone. And I know that because I've, I've, had, I've had experiences where midway through I've, I've called a halt and maybe we'll come back to those because they were really interesting. But yeah, by far, by far, by far, by far, the majority of experiences, just wonderful, playful, entertaining, beyond belief. Like, you know, it's like, you know, when you're a child and, and you're laughing with glee, you know, and you, you're beside yourself that kind of fun, that kind of laughter, like more fun than you can imagine. But there are some that are qualitatively different. So let's come back to your question nine, which as you say, I, you know, I've often uh, occasionally described unpleasant, challenging, or even terrifying encounters with the entities. What compelled me to keep going? So I would say I completely bought into the idea, uh, having devised my very own unsanctioned research program, that I, I was undertaking very serious, very important and cutting edge research. My commitment was based in determination. I and considered the challenging encounters almost as a test of my resolve, something that had to be overcome in order to make progress in my research. Now, and I think this is significant, it's a little story about me, but back in my school days and occasionally as a young adult, I, I suffered the wrath of a bully by virtue of fixing them square in the eye until they look away, knowing that whilst I'm unlikely to win a physical fight, I just gained a, a longer lasting and to my mind far more meaningful victory. And it was on operating on something like that mindset following a challenging DMT entity encounter, something like, I'm not going to allow you to get away with that, I will return. And you know what, every time that I did return after a challenging encounter, it, it seemed there was the reward of a really wonderful, rewarding encounter. So I, I saw the challenging ones as a, a, a test of my resolve, saying if you want to proceed beyond this and see more, you're going to have to come back and we're going to put the frighteners on you in this experience and uh, it's going to test your resolve. And uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did. I was very determined, uh, but also very respectful and I, I didn't feel I was acting foolhardy I was you know I made it very clear or as best I could to these entities that I was conducting and documenting research you know I mean I didn't express that verbally but you know thought transference or trying to project what I'm thinking and uh, yeah um question 10 is about some experience described as so frightening and you're asking was uh, a time I was really shaken up and didn't want to continue and uh, were the people close to me shaken up and didn't want me to continue so it's often the case that with DMT that one's ego reacts vocally and vigorously in rejecting any suggestion of commitment to DMT and somehow the user has to find a strategy to overcome that so Dealing with internal appeals not to proceed is, is pretty commonplace. However, there was this one occasion when I was home alone and those appeals were, they were fervently beseeching me not to proceed. And rather stupidly, I ignored those appeals. So what follows now is a quote from DNT and My Occult Mind 2. And um, yeah, okay, so I'll start. Uh, 
okay, I'm in the bedroom, I've, I've smoked DMT. Sorry, I'm in the landing and I've smoked DMT and uh, I'm not clear whether there's an entity there or not, but I I'll start from the quote. Okay, and now I was dealing with a most unwelcome and unsavoury idea that had become fixed in my head. How could I know if the idea was born of a suggestion made to my mind or was one born from the dark substance of my own mind? How could I be sure of one over the other? And how could I be sure the two were not working together in legion or as a combine? In short, I was dealing with a really terrible bastard motherfucker of an idea that was refusing to budge from inside my head. Something seemed intent on making, making me seem red and acting in a rum old manner. I questioned how would I ever deal with this awful nonsense. I came to the very difficult but very honest conclusion that bottling this up would not be in any way helpful. And it was on that basis I realised I would need to approach my wife and broach the matter with her. And the sooner I did it, the better, because unbeknownst to my wife, she was the focus of those ill-motive machinations that dare not speak plainly. And I, I gotta be honest, that, that was one hell of an experience. It, 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 that scarred my mental health. I mean, the scenario seemingly spelled the end of, of my research. It, it certainly resulted in a period of cessation. And on reflection, I don't think I'd ever, I don't think I'd ever had a true appreciation of the darker terrain of my psyche and the delicacy with which you know, one's sanity holds its subtle balance. But that experience gave me a startling insight into that particular matter of my mind. And I, I now see the mild mental scarring that resulted from that as somewhat analogous to a, a sports injury. Without injury, as one truly partaken of their chosen sport. And that, that analogy is not to suggest that pursuing DMT should be seen as a sport, far from it, as, as I hope the above example should, you know, starkly convey, you know. Are, are, are you describing the instance where you uh, you smoked and you said that you had baleful thoughts put into yeah, your head? Yeah, That's yeah. the instance. Could, yeah. you talk, could you describe that in a little more detail so the audience knows what that experience was? So this, this, this is an experience where, as I say, you know, ordinarily it's very difficult to smoke DMT because your ego is screaming at you not to do it. But on this particular occasion, it, you know, the magnitude of those appeals were, were very much higher in magnitude and I, I chose to ignore them. And as I say, I, I, I smoked and um, a lot of ill-begotten, nefarious, ill-boding machinations towards my wife filled my head and I, I kind of you know got up and you know when something's in your head you can't reach in and take it out and I I, I don't know I wanted to get out so I, I went outside and I was like geez man I, I need to do something to take my mind off that and I went to the foot of the garden and uh, I picked up the axe to chop some wood and I thought no that's the worst thing you can be doing <laughs> And, you know, um, so kind of went somewhere else and, and sat down, I think, on a, I, I say a nest of, of sticks. It, it, it was like, you know, it, was a, it looked like a big nest, an oversized nest of sticks that the, the wind had swirled into, you know, a circular pattern. And yeah, you know, I, I don't want to spell it out plainly. I, I've put the verbal clues very clearly within the book. You know, it, it, it's very... I think it's very clear what I'm hinting at without speaking it plainly, but it was awful and, and you know, it was very difficult to to speak candidly to my wife and then see her reaction and, and listen to her and then have to go to work that day and then come back and, you know, listen again to her very real concerns, you know. But But you know what? I'd done the right thing. I, I'd not bottled these feelings up, and if I had, they wouldn't have gone away. They would have become increasingly insistent, increasingly demanding, and it was only by speaking about them that, and then eventually coming to laugh about them, that I could kind of exercise myself, and it, you know took a while to uh, return to DMT and even then it was with, with great trepidation and caution. But as I say, 
and, and other DMT users will attest to this, it's, it's usually the darker experiences that, that give you more insight into your own soul, your own psyche, and the nature of these experiences. And I would say that's true, but to this day, I do not know whether that was an entity interaction or my mind working under its own steam. What, what, what I found very interesting was, again, it's always difficult to smoke DMT, but on that occasion, my instincts were screaming at me. Do not do it. And I ignored them and I paid a price. Hmm. Yeah. And you think that uh, this could be a lesson for other people who have difficult experiences uh, when you start to, when you start to have things come into your mind that you don't want, maybe it's important to talk to other people about it? Uh, absolutely. That's, okay. I mean, I, I'm not a, a medical or psychiatric professional, but I'm right. very clear. That, that's, that's what all the advice points to, 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 to speak to somebody, you know, and if it's really serious, seek help. I, I chose to speak to my wife, and uh, yeah, it's it a good job I did, yeah. And, and so she was alarmed enough that she didn't want you to continue with uh, the DMT experiments after that? I'm, I'm blessed with such a good wife. So rather than her saying, I don't think you should smoke it again, she said, I think you should have a break from it. And I mm. said, yeah, I, I agree, and I did. So it sounds like you stay in regular touch with your wife. You described her as being the first person uh, to be with you when you first smoked and you yeah. check in with her about your experiences? Um, so I, I've, apart from that one time and maybe a couple of others where I've had my wife sit with me, I've, I've always preferred to, to research alone. Hmm. Um, um, there, there was, I, I mean, my wife's Muslim. So she believes in, in things called jinn, you know, jinn and angels, mm. you know, unseen beings. And um, I would tell her about my experiences, you know, in the first few months, uh, you know. And uh, as I'm sort of coming to an understanding of, of what's occurring, I'm, I'm kind of sharing those insights with her. And I wasn't really sure whether she was interested or not, but there was this one time where we, we'd just come back from a, a family holiday and I'd, I'd sat in a garden chair, rather than laying that, I'd sat in a garden chair and I'd smoked this dose of DMT and something zapped the back of my head. I mean, really powerfully zapped me through the crown of my head and it just rendered me senseless. I, I kind of fell forward like a, a limp rag doll and was completely senseless and um you know uh, and i told my wife this afterwards and she said maybe you got stung by a bee and i was i was infuriated at she how can you be so disrespectful to these experiences and it kind of i never i didn't mention it again for for several weeks the experiences and then she kind of began to take an interest and i think this was before i published the book but now i've published books and you know I've got the opportunity to go on podcasts and explain this I think she's come to the realization that, that she, with DMT this spirit molecule it is an opportunity for humans to interact very directly with hidden agency from hidden nature whether they're angels or jinn or, or whatever we choose to call them I, I call them occult masters again I'm not so hung up on nomenclature or, or, you know, what, what names we use, but yeah, I think she, she's more on board with it now, but it's not something that interests her. Do you think that's something that helps your research program, that you have someone who's grounded, who's not also actively experimenting, but who you can, you know, you can talk to, like you said, you know, she's the one checking you, saying, well, maybe you got stung by a bee, and as infuriating as that is, maybe it's it's really beneficial for you to be able to run some of your experiences by another a third party who you can trust yeah, and talk to yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, you know I, I i'm i'm very blessed my wife gives me uh, she gives me a lot of freedom i mean you know we got we got two boys but i have a lot of freedom to pursue these uh, experiences and I, I gotta be honest if it wasn't for my wife there would be no dmt in my cold mind i you know i've spoke to many people who have expressed expressed frustration that they want to pursue it but their partner won't allow it and I think that's really that's 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 sad you know 
Let's see. Can we go back a little bit? And yeah. um, I guess I wanted to know, uh, could you talk about, I wanna, I wanna hear about your research program. I have a question that, you know, like what made you decide? And I guess that's the question to ask. What made you decide, you know, I'm gonna research this thing, one. And two, I'm gonna research it according to a research program that starts with the premise that there are occult entities. Because I, I noticed you say in your book that that's, and tell me, if, correct me if I'm wrong, that that's a core assumption of the way you do your research. You assume that there are real things out there um, that, that are contacting you. And you say that's an important assumption for doing this research. Is that correct? Uh, no, not quite. Um, okay. No. They, I mean, so I, I was way before DMT, I was deeply immersed in, in reading theosophy, esoteric and occult literature. So I already believed in unseen realities and, and spiritual beings way before I'd heard of DMT. Um, I, I, you know, long-term influence on my mind and on my thinking. And when I first started smoking DMT, I, it's like it's like the research I'd done on everybody else's experiences, it just went out the window. And it was the same with my knowledge of theosophy, it just all went out the window. I just had no idea what was going on. So I, I'd not started with the premise that I would be interacting with occult beings. I, I, I had this very um, specific, I guess, research protocol in mind, which was I, I wanted to understand the causal nature of the experience after smoking the potent substance. I had no preconceived ideas, despite, you know, the influence of theosophy. I had no idea what was going on. And it was slowly and by degrees and by pursuing it time and time again that I started to see little things and work little things out. And then there were, so there's some subtle observations, but then there was one really, there was one particular experience where from that point on, it was very obvious to me that I was, uh, I was going to say I was dealing with spiritual entities, but it, it's more true to say that they were dealing with me. So I can give some examples, because you'd asked that in question four, what, what made you think you were in contact with entities and not simply having weird experiences caused by a mind-altering substance. So as I say, initially it was very subtle until I'd had an experience that made it unquestionable. So a few examples of the subtle indicators. So um, there was one occasion where I was pursuing three low-dose pipes in under an hour. Uh, this was early in my research, but I'd, I'd had numerous breakthrough experiences by this point. So there were three separate pipes. I think it was one three milligram, five milligram, seven milligram, low doses, but fresh crystals. And nothing of significance occurred after the first two pipes, but after inhaling the seven milligram dose, it suddenly felt like I'd, I'd wet myself, like, like I'd inexplicably pissed my pants. And um, I knew, or rather suspected, that I hadn't, but it wasn't until my hand ventured down my pants that I was able to confirm they were dry. But confirming as much, there was this unmissable perception that something just above me was enjoying this situation and was laughing really hard at me as I lay there in confusion with my hand down my pants. So I didn't come away from that thinking there was a spiritual entity that somehow convinced me I'd wet my pants. I just come away from that thinking I, I felt like there was something watching me. I could, I could feel a presence. I couldn't hear it laughing, but I tell you what, I'm pretty damn sure it was. So that's one example. So um, another example was I was tempting a breakthrough in the bedroom and after the third inhalation, I placed my torch flame lighter on the carpet and you know, I reposed, I lay back. My DMT molecules arrive at my brain, result in the room filling with my own projected, you know, highly energetic mind stuff. Uh, and there was an overwhelming sense that the experience of profound otherworldliness would be, or rather could be, immediately upon me. But there was something else too. There was um, a hissing sound, and I didn't know what it was. And I just wanted this otherworldly experience to begin because, you know, I'd invested a lot of courage in committing to going into smoking DMT. And now I'd smoked it, I could feel the potential of the experience, it was there. But it wasn't, it was like holding off. 
and um, you know it's like it was purposefully holding itself back but not only that it was all this this invisible potential was mindful of this ongoing hissing sound and I was frustrated and impatient and to the extent that I actually hollered to this invisible potential something like come on what are you waiting for uh, by now, I'd begun to wonder about the source of this, this ongoing hissing sound, and upon turning aside, I, I determined that butane gas was escaping under pressure from the refill valve in my otherwise trusty lighter. So it seemed, you know, what I've since come to recognise as an entity in the room, ready to impose upon me and engage with me, was holding off because my lighter was, was suffering this, this, you know, leak of butane gas from the refill valve and it seemed the entity could hear that could see that whatever and was holding off but at that time i had no idea i just thought some things i don't know what it is but something's there and it's not interacting so that that's another example of it being subtle um let's try and get to the uh the one that cemented it. So yeah. this this one notable experiment in my bedroom, this is a quote, so one notable experiment in my bedroom without any visionary content cemented my suspicion that these experiences really were interactions with one of a class of powerful, powerful spiritual entities, beings of hidden nature. In the otherwise consensus reality of the bedroom, I watched in awe as the manifested entity filling the volume of the sunlit room failed to misdirect my attention, has had occurred many times before during previous experiences. Immediately prior to its departure, I earnestly and eagerly voiced aloud, I am not missing this. An incredibly beautiful transparent entity then silently and serenely peeled itself away from the bedroom walls and slowly exited the bedroom now I knew beyond a shadow of doubt that I was dealing with spiritual beings, or rather, they were dealing with me. So I'm waiting to my research programme now. Still not sure, but there's been subtle clues. And then I have this experience, and from there on, that was a game changer for me, because I was able to see this entity peel itself and glide. I mean, I say it glided out through the door. I mean, it filled the, the volume of the room, so it was gliding through the open door, but also gliding through the walls either side of the door and moving something like I don't know you know you know the skates the rayfish and that that wonderful undulation it's like that so beautiful and serene and just just went and uh, you know from that moment on that the sort of idea of, of you know the, the theosophical literature that I'd read you know also started to become significant I, I then start to you know equate okay you know this these are really spiritual entities before that i just was unclear i wasn't sure i was open-minded and that's all the time we have for this week thanks for listening everyone and tune in next week for the conclusion to my interview with dick Khan, author of dmt and my occult mind